Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know, Sheila. It's amazing that you were willing to join and talk about what might be, I don't know, I presume it's one of the best-selling books in the world for business. <laughs> sense, wow. I guess. I mean, congratulations. This is going pretty. Is this is going used. pretty well so far. I just want to say. <laughs> I mean, is that how you like to be introduced as the author of the number one I'll take it. I have no idea time. if that's actually true, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, it's not schlocky enough, probably, to be the number one of all time. It is so substantive and serious and valuable, but it's like really horizontal in its application. Right, difficult conversation. Yeah. Might also be that you chose a wonderful color for the cover. I don't know. Who <laughs> Could be, but I think that you have hit upon something that felt important to us, which is that we really wanted to explore the difficult conversations that we have in all parts of our life, right? Like our personal life and our professional life and just in relationship with other human beings on this planet. And I guess it's like uh, writing the book was the end product of a process of research and experimentation. Mm -hmm. And I guess you and your co-author come from slightly different fields. And I wonder if you could just give a little synopsis for those following along on on in the know. Well, so the Harvard Negotiation Project is probably best known for the book Getting to Yes, which was written yeah. way back in 1979. Yuri and Fisher, probably Yuri on everybody's Fisher and Patton, shelf somewhere. Right? Yeah, exactly. So by the time I turned up as a law school student and took the negotiation course at Harvard Law School from Roger Fisher, who had founded the Negotiation Project, you know, they were sort of humming along teaching negotiation influence, just how to better resolve differences in the world. Batnas and, and things. Yeah, yeah. By the time I then graduated and joined them full time, people were starting to say, well, gosh, these principles are great, but actually there are some conversations where it's really not helping. And in fact, sometimes when I use these principles, it makes things worse. Oh, and like at home. Like, let's negotiate. Like at home, or, or yeah. often it was particularly challenging conversations where emotions were running high and there was really strong disagreement. And when Getting to Yes talks about separating the people from the problem, the reaction was, right, but the people are the problem. Like, they're totally. driving me crazy and I don't trust them enough to want to problem solve with them, you know, whatever that might be. And, e- and either so in a temporary was, way or in a deeper, lasting way, right? It's right, like, exactly. I'm mad, like, I, they're mad, or we hate each I'm other mad, on a fundamental mad. values level. We don't actually want to be in relationship with each other sometimes, but we're stuck mm. together either because we're sharing a geography in the world or co-parenting or, you know, this is my boss. But but also in the relationships that are most important to us, right? But where we're struggling because we don't agree about everything and we step on each other's toes and hurt each other and frustrate each other. So it was kind of a clue to us that, okay, maybe there's something more for us to learn here. And so we just started inviting people to bring us their toughest conversations and we started to take them apart and just listen for the patterns in what was getting us stuck and what might actually help. And that was a really long process. I mean, it was seven years of learning and teaching and experimenting and adapting and writing. And our our aspiration at the time was also, could we write something that would be immediately accessible and immediately useful, that someone could pick up the book, read it on a plane, walk off the plane, and have some new ideas for how to do some things differently that would really make a difference? That's a pretty soaring vision of where you want it to land. I mean, it's a just very by being ambitious vision. Yeah. It's right. a super so like, ambitious vision. And, solve the hardest and problem in the world with the most popular book in the world. And make it <laughs> easy to understand, like clear, but not simplistic. And right. that, I think, it was the challenge. So, you know, the book is not that long. It's like 200 and whatever pages, 80 pages. Yeah, I wish it was longer. And, it, and it's <laughs> full of examples and stuff, too. But yeah, yeah like, it's you know, the advanced full of examples. Version. And we were trying to include examples from all parts of life, right? So that we were really clear that this is about life and being in relationships. It's for business people, for sure. But it's also, you know, applicable to marriage and friendships and neighbors and, you know, the geopolitical landscape. Yeah, the expansiveness of your... Scope is a pleasure to behold, especially when, I guess, the origins come in this, like, how to seal the deal negotiation project, Yeah. sort of legalistic, combative, like, thing. Yeah. And I guess 
some of the best work. And and I think Heifetz is, I mean, this is one of the things I appreciate a lot about Heifetz's stuff on leadership. Yes. I don't know how often it's intersected with you, but the dude's like, yes. okay, you know, I work with prime ministers, but it's also for physicians and for, for husbands and wives. Totally. And like, oh, wow. Wow. And I love his stuff, and I do think that it sits really comfortably alongside. We're sort of on these intersecting and parallel paths because part of what we're each grappling with is that leadership and you know, being in relationship with other people is both about figuring out who you are and also who you want to be, how you want to show up. And that means you're always both negotiating with yourself and negotiating with those around you. So now back to this analytical and experimental process. So you, you know, sort of change the sign on your door and it says, I will now help you with your tough conversations and people start coming in. And you, I guess, with your colleagues were listening, taking notes, sort of doing the architecture of these conversations with people. Were you also from the first meeting, like trying to help? I mean, you were sort of not yeah. a skilled counselor or a therapist at the outset, right? You were just like a friendly, I mean, or, I mean you're a trained negotiator yeah. and lawyer, but like, <laughs> you know, like I come to you with a problem, I'm like fighting with my brother about the family inheritance and you're going to like help me with that? Well, so there's this funny way in which from a negotiation point of view, we felt reasonably qualified to help you with parts of that already. But from an interpersonal and introspective point of view, I totally agree with you. It was like, do we really know what we're talking about? And in fact, one of the very first reviews of Difficult Conversations that showed up on Amazon, which was a brand new you know, place to buy books at the time. <laughs> and one of our very first reviews was like one star, like, what do a bunch of lawyers think they know about human beings? <laughs> Trenchant. What I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Read the book. Do you think we know? But to be fair to that reviewer, really, our learning came out of a collaboration that had already been going on for about 10 years. Right. By the time the book years. is published, but it's in your first session that I'm curious. And I guess you, well, you sort of gingerly sort of stepped into it. Yeah, it's a little more complex than that, because actually, there was already a collaboration going on starting in the late 80s that was with the Family Institute of Cambridge. So the Family Institute of Cambridge are therapists who train other people to be family therapists. And uh-huh. Roger had reached out to them in the late 80s to say, look, we're trying to understand you know, human beings and negotiation and influence. You guys are specialists in obviously therapy, but also group dynamics in families, systems. I wonder what we could learn from each other. And so together, they had created this exercise called the Interpersonal Skills Exercise that Roger started doing in the negotiation course at Harvard Law School. And it was, you know, it involved psychodrama and videotaping where people would bring real situations. And then collaboratively with a negotiation person and a therapist, we would take apart what's going on, where people are getting stuck and what might help. So by the time I show up, like I do that exercise as a student. And by that time, it had been going on for a few years, and my colleagues, Doug and Bruce, who were already teaching it, started saying, gosh, we're seeing some patterns in what gets people stuck and what helps. I wonder whether there's learning to do here, right? We're getting clued in that there's more we should be learning. And so by the time we really officially start the project in the early 90s, we already have some learning under our belt, and we're already collaborating with some people who have insight that we're learning a ton from as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a cold start. You've got this framework. It's not a cold start. <laughs> and you're refining, refining. And by the time you write the book, it's like thousands and thousands of interactions yes. and taken apart yes. and analyzed. And it exactly. is by no means a bunch of lawyers writing about people. It's people. Exactly. Study people <laughs> writing about And we people. still do the exercise, actually. Mm. If you take the course at Harvard, either through our advanced course, our exec ed, or through the regular course, you go through this exercise and people often walk away saying this, that was probably the most powerful thing we did. So similar to the Heifetz, Ron's course, right? Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that experientially changes how you see yourself and how you see the possibilities. Okay. You form the theory. Okay. You deploy the ideas. And for those who are yet to read this Bible, Mm -hmm. sketch for us, please, your theory. Yeah, in 100 words or less. Let's see. There are a couple of key ideas. One is that if we want to understand the conversations that we find difficult in our lives, meaning we, they keep us up at, at night, we feel like I try to have them, it's not working. To understand them, you have to look beyond what people are saying to each other 
to look at what they're really thinking and feeling and often not saying to each other. So we have to look at people's internal voices. So that's number one. And then number two, when we do look at people's internal voices, it turns out the same things show up each time. Meaning it doesn't matter if I'm talking to my boss or my spouse or my teenager or my neighbor, the same kinds of things will show up in my internal voice when I start to get frustrated. And so you can group those things into three buckets. And that's the underlying structure of every difficult conversation. If you understand that, well, then you can navigate any difficult conversation more successfully because you have a few landmarks to look for and listen for. So the first bucket is that we each have a story about what happened, what happened, what is happening. By the way, are they buckets or are they layers that we... Well, that's a good question. You can imagine as academics, how many conversations we had to try to figure out what are these buckets? Are they layers? Are they elements? Are they? We ended up calling them the three conversations because they each are sort of a, a set of conversations we're having with ourselves almost about what's going on. But I think you could describe them as layers as well. Right. I mean, adding the word layers to suggest there's some kind of interrelation between them, dependent. Which I think there is. I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. I can tell the story in both directions. I can tell Mm -hmm. it the way that we tell it in the book, which is sort of on the surface, part of what we're negotiating about or discussing is what's happening and what should happen. So that story that we each have has three key components. One is, what am I right about? Who's right and particularly what am I right about? The second is, whose fault is it that we're having this problem? And the third is, what's motivating you? What are your intentions? Why are you being so difficult or you know clueless or whatever? You pushed so me. Those, you're selfish. You're selfish. You don't care. You're controlling. You're jealous. Um, you're threatened by me. Like That just helps me understand why you're being so intransigent, like why you don't get it. So that's maybe the surface level. Then underneath that, there are at least two more things going on. The second thing is that once a conversation gets difficult, we each have a bunch of feelings, right, about what's going on. Frustrated, confused, exasperated, guilty, self-doubting, betrayed, whatever. And then if you go one layer deeper, since we're talking layers, if a conversation feels difficult, chances are there's something the situation suggests about you, about your identity, the story you tell about who you are that feels at risk. Like this suggests I'm not competent or I'm not a good friend or a good parent or I don't have good Bad judgment. brother in the back seat. I mean, I think the, the, bad it's such brother, a clear yeah. and simple way of, you use this example a few times of like kids fighting in the back seat. And I actually find that to be so basic yeah. and universal. Everyone's seen totally. it. And actually that has the same level too, right? It's like, you pushed me, you're over the line, stop it. You always do this. And then, you know, you're just greedy. You're so bossy. You're down into this level of like, I'm mad, you're mad, whatever. And yeah. fundamentally it's about like, are you a good person? Are you a good are you a good whatever. person? Are you yeah, worthy of love? Worst. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And you can see it in the back seat. <laughs> yeah. And then it generalizes it everything like business and hiring. And yeah. And it's amazing. But is it always at risk? I mean, but, yeah. Okay. So that's like a real simple sketch. And of course, there's a lot of depth to it, but I want to interrogate it a little bit. And here it's just central that feelings are real, emotions are real, right? You've turned the, the, the getting to yes thing on its head. And you said, no, actually, it's fundamentally about who they are. The people are the core of the problem mm-hmm. now in some of these conversations. And yeah. maybe first, I wonder if it's always true for all conversations. And if indeed, even the getting to, I mean, both can be pragmatic and helpful, and it doesn't have to be a contest, and you guys can all be pals. But is it possible that even just like doing a deal with this other counterparty over some very legalistic nature thing actually will also have these layers? I mean, I love watching lawyers fight and get all puppy and whatever they do. And it, yeah. you sort of see some of the same stuff going on, you know, ego, basically. You totally have the same stuff going on. And so when people ask me, gosh, what framework should I reach for? Should we do the difficult conversations framework or should we be focused on the negotiation tools? Partly, I say, well, it depends on where you're at and what's relevant right now. Because one of the things that's interesting to me is that different people find different conversations challenging. Like for some people, firing someone is like it's going to keep them up at night for weeks before and weeks after. It's just really Mm. hard. And particularly, by the way, of course, if you have a personal relationship with them, that exacerbates it. For other people, it's not that they enjoy the conversation, but they don't find it as challenging, right? Right. Or saying no. Some people have a terrible time saying no. They're a team player. They want to be loyal and helpful. They feel really guilty. Other people, it's like, you know, let me check. No, it's not really going to work for me. 
I can't help you. And so what's interesting is that sometimes you're in a negotiation and it's, you know, it's pretty transactional and people, it's not necessarily that it's easy to come to agreement, but people don't seem particularly personally hooked. And Mm. then other times, even you don't think you're going to be when suddenly it's like, okay, why am I finding this so frustrating? It's like the emotional temperature in the discussion. It's probably the emotional temperature or something that comes up, right? Like, are you suggesting that I'm not being straight with you? Like, are you accusing Whoa. me of lying? And hmm. then now suddenly identity is on the table. Whereas before it was just, hey, we just have a problem to solve. How should we handle it? Often it just arises in the course of a negotiation. Yeah. I mean, but this is a really observational way of characterizing how the conversations are different. And I'm, of course, you're right, because what else do you have to go on if you're observing these things? But like, I guess what I'm wondering is um, you as the observer in mm-hmm. describing these things maybe aren't the participant. I know I'm in it. So I know me, actually. So I know a lot about mm-hmm. this conversation because I know where I'm at. And perhaps with some self-awareness, I may be even better at that. And you probably, if you're dealing with someone you know well, and most of the time you're dealing with people you you know you know a bit, you may have some judgment about, about them and uh, how predisposed they are to trigger the difficult flavor where the emotional temperature rises because identity is at stake in some way. Do you mean that you can anticipate it? Yeah, just Just like some people, you're going to, it's going to be tough. And this topic is going to be tough for that person. Like that person's like really sensitive and they've been bruised and now you got to tell them something that's going to kind of pick it back. 100%. And by the way, there are some people who just their name showing up in my email inbox. (laughs) <laughs> the difficulty, right? It's like I haven't even opened the note from them yet. I'm already anticipating that this isn't going to be fun or this isn't going to be easy. Right, right. And, you right. know, and so that's the other thing is that I think I think in part the negotiation material, it's not fair to say that it was not anticipating history in the relationship, but it probably undercounted history in the relationship. And often we're coming into the next round of conversation or negotiation already with history and anticipating what's difficult. And frustrating. Okay, so taxonomizing the types of situations when you're in a real cool temperature, rational one, you know, the pattern of the observational information and perhaps your understanding of the characters at the table, you know, maybe identity is not a great peril, this mm-hmm. is a big deal, the emotional temperature is low, let's keep it on the purely rational level and, and you know, focus on the problem. But I suppose you pick out, and, you, and we feel it, of course, is a, is a key argument of, that you guys make. It's just like, you kind of know when something's not, when something's going to be hard. And what you're diagnosing is that the emotional temperature has risen. And I wonder if, um, because, you know, we did the layers version of your of your mm-hmm. sketch here. And every time there's emotions, is it really about identity? Or can yeah. we separate them and be like, nah, it's just about emotions. Just chill out. You'll be fine. Let's talk in an hour. Yeah, you know, it's such a ripe question. I was just having that conversation with somebody the other day as we were talking about it. We were trying to think of a situation where there's emotion involved, but it's not necessarily as tied to identity. So maybe there are degrees I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Shapiro's work. So Dan and Roger Fisher wrote a book after Difficult Conversations called Beyond Reason. They were also the Harvard Negotiation Project. And they were wrestling with the question of what is the role of emotion in working relationships and how do we better understand it? So they're sort of taking this a few steps further. And partly what they noticed that was that we have a set of core concerns around how we want to feel treated by other people. And that when those get stepped on, that's when you get an emotional reaction. Dan and I actually the other day were talking about, are each of those also identity concerns or are they sometimes independent of identity? So their list is autonomy. Like, do you get to decide or do I get to, why are you telling me what to do? Like, this is mine. Yeah. Go away. That's totally an identity concern. Yeah. yeah which seems to me affiliation. Mm-hmm. Like, how come I wasn't invited? Why, why am I not in the loop here? Right. Am I in or am I yeah. out? Which What's wrong Depending, with me? Why don't it you can like be, me? Why don't you like me? I, I think sometimes something. that can just be, I'm annoyed, but I don't think it's really about me. It's about you and your forgetfulness. But hmm. sometimes it really is about identity. Like I'm left out chronically, right? And that's a part of this culture that's problematic or whatever. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, that's partly affiliation concerns, and those are very tied to identity. So they talk about let's say autonomy, affiliation, appreciation. Do I feel seen um, and valued? Uh, Role, what's my role? Do I like it? Am I good at it? Is it valued? And then status, am I treated as, you know, am I condescended to or how much deference and how seriously are people taking what I have to say? Yeah, I mean, these are all so core. (laughs) They're they're very core. So 
you know, we were talking about layers, and I said I can tell the story either way. I can tell the story as either here's what's going on on the surface, and then go down a layer to feelings and down a layer to identity. Or I can tell the story the other way around, which is identity somehow gets tripped. I then have an emotional reaction, and then that influences how I tell the story about what's happening. Yeah. I mean, I see the causality flowing in that direction, but but there is a bunch of emotional noise. I have to confess that I'm a newcomer to the following perhaps obviously true statement. I just got here and here's the statement. Feelings are real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I um, spent a lot of my, you know, academic and businessy kind of career just basically doing my best to assume that they're not real. And if they're kind of getting in the way, just like open the window and let the let the air blow around a bit and, and they'll be gone. Yeah, and this, of course, is wrong. They'll, they'll, they'll drift out to sea. Yes. <laughs> this, this, of course, is uh, is not right. And as my kind of scope and authority has increased, of course, I've had to confront this foolish uh, axiom that I was operating with. And okay, so now I know feelings are real. Great. But they're not all the same. And they're not all so deep. And one of my access points on this is a pretty shallow and annoying emotion that I have, probably more than any other emotion. I'm not like a terribly emotional person. And perhaps that's easy for me to assume it wasn't real. This emotion is anger just getting mad and frustrated, annoyed mm-hmm. at stuff, you know, like, what the fuck, this work is garbage, get out of here, I'm not going to spend an hour with you on this leap. Now that is me being hopelessly emotional. That's not me being pragmatic and efficient, which is what I used to think. That's me yeah. just being overcome by just like, whatever, impatience or anger, I guess, and not behaving yeah. in a way I would counsel anyone else to behave. That's just wrong. I got to like, get a grip on that, I guess. And that's from me looking out into the world. Is that an identity emotion? Is someone supposed to help me deal with that by saying like, hey, look, I know your time's important, you're important. Yeah, so sometimes I bet it is tied to identity. I think that anger and that that whole sort of family of emotions, right? Anger, irritation, annoyance, et cetera, impatience, are really an interesting category because more and more I'm buying into the idea that in many cases they're secondary emotions. I don't know if you've run into that idea yet. No. Um, That partly the first feeling I have may be surprise or hurt or confusion or, in other words, I have some initial reaction and then I think to myself, not usually particularly consciously, I shouldn't be feeling this way. This should not be happening to me. And then it turns into anger. Like I had not planned on needing to take my kids to the dentist today because my husband said that he could do it. So now I'm planning my day and then he forgets to take himself off call and he gets a call just before we need to leave for the dentist. Now I'm annoyed and I'm annoyed because I now have to reshuffle some things, which is not easy. And then I end up walking out the door without my phone. Now I'm really agitated because I'm surprised to learn that I don't have my phone with me. And then that creates a crisis because I'm supposed to be getting back to somebody about a contract. And so what I'm experiencing is that I'm angry or frustrated, but it's kind of a secondary thing on top of surprise and I shouldn't be surprised, feeling like I want to have control of my life and suddenly I have no control, feeling yeah. guilty that I'm but supposed to be back to someone crisis. and now I'm late. I but, mean, if but, I'm the dental receptionist and you walk in and you're just like spitting mad and you're like, what the hell, why are you guys running late? Like, I mean, I didn't do anything. That's like an open the window situation, right? Like, whoa, this person's really mad. Let me just like help them. Well, it's not, just... it should not be for the dental receptionist, but partly I'm negotiating with myself because part of the feelings are probably from, I think of myself as a responsible person. I was supposed to get back to somebody about a contract. They're waiting mm. for it. They're texting me. And now mm-hmm. I can't even respond to text because I don't have my phone and I'm feeling bad because I'm a responsive person to deal with. Yeah. Right. So a little bit of it is tied to identity for me. So my anger and irritation is a reaction to this isn't who I want to be or how I want to be. And also I don't want to be lashed out at the receptionist. That's not fair. Like she has nothing to do with it. So then I'm trying to be careful not to do that because of who I want to be in the world. And I don't know, what do you think about when you get angry or irritated? Is it first like, well, I feel hurt by what they just did, but now I'm also mad at them? Is there a sometimes, I don't think it's always secondary, but I think more often than I suspect sometimes it's secondary. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, 
there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I think that cascade that you sketched feels familiar. I don't know about like primary, secondary as a piece of theory, but this cascade doesn't feel like it's rooted primarily in identity. And I guess that's kind of what I was hunting for with you. It's like, so we're having this difficult conversation, right? We're in one of our classical difficult Mm -hmm. spots where I'm going to have to counsel someone out of the company or I'm going to have to get someone to quit smoking or something. Otherwise, we're going to end the relationship or I don't know. I just, I don't want to end the relationship, but you just got to be more healthy, please, or whatever. It's one of these ones. And um, there may be some emotion that's making it really crazy, but probably the frothy emotion that isn't linked to identity, it's probably not that tough to deal with. It's just choose a different moment, perhaps. Like those ones, you can probably just blow off the, the head of the beer and they'll go away. And the, But the hard ones that you have to sort of get under are probably these identity-linked ones. I'll say one more thing that's probably relevant to what you're describing, which is I think that it has been conventional wisdom that, you know, we're talking business, keep emotions out of it. They're not really relevant here. Let's just stick to the task. And that makes sense in some cases. And by the time something becomes a difficult conversation, we often actually have two problems to solve. One is whatever the surface problem is, right? We need to agree on the lease term or whatever. But the underlying one is often how we each feel treated by the other. And so if we're not addressing that at some point, then we're actually not solving that deeper problem, which means that it's going to surface in a different form like next week or next month. So when you have working relationships where there's friction, often you have a deeper how we each feel treated by the other problem that is related to emotion. And that actually means we can't solve the business problems effectively together. So they're worth Mm -hmm. talking about. Let's do like a, a little toolkit on the emotions. I was suggesting you can open the window and just wait for them to exit the room, and that's me being silly, I guess. Uh, it, but it is, you know, a technique that people use, which is simply to for wait sure. until emotions cool down. Yes. And so, without ignoring them, and then saying that identity is more important, but just tackling a situation where emotion is stirred up. What are some nice ways to address that? So, you know, like you gave that example of the negotiator saying, "Wait, are you saying that I'm not telling the truth or misrepresenting something?" And now suddenly you feel that tackles are up. Emotion is. Yeah. Is in the room. Yeah. Well, let me also, by the way, validate something that you've said, which is at least one thing that you've said, (laughs) which is that when I'm in the midst of the emotional reaction, like I've got the adrenaline going, it actually is changing the way my prefrontal cortex is actually processing information. And so really in those moments, the rule of thumb is do no harm. Like just don't do something that's actually going to hurt this situation and this working relationship during that time. So whether that's like wait and open a window until you're in a better space, that definitely is important. We tend to have a rule in our office called no reactionary replies on email, especially Mm. no reactionary reply alls. Like don't respond to the email when you're triggered by it. Yeah. So if you feel mad, do not hit send. Do not respond right now. But that doesn't mean that we should not engage the emotions once we're in a better space to do so sometimes. So you were asking for a toolkit. I think that's really the first rule of the toolkit, which is do no harm. Do no harm. Cool down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do do no harm in that moment. And, and that's, by so, the way... That's, it's bivalent, so it's like I feel mad, okay, so I should chill. But if they are the one who's mad, you should yeah. just wait. That's not the moment Perfect. for you to, you know, ante up there accusations or threats or whatever, whatever they say is presumably something you want to let drop until people are cooler because they may not have behaved properly either, right? In that interaction. Right, right. They're reacting and it's not helpful. That said, the safest place you can go, which is maybe step number two, is to listening. Like listening, acknowledging, I'm both buying myself time to calm down, but also if they're, if things are escalating and they're also frustrated, saying, okay, can we just pause here for a second? Because I'm not sure what just happened. 
I'm frustrated. I feel like we're going in circles. You're probably frustrated too. Help me understand what's the problem from your point of view or why does this matter so much or whatever it is. I need to ask some questions to better understand where they're at, which doesn't mean I have to agree, but that's what's going to help us both get back to a place where we can figure out what's going on. Have you seen this Have you seen this Boy Scout style like, yes, thank you for the feedback. Please go on. I want to hear more about it. Have you seen that style make things I, worse? Not that particular version, but say more. Well, I mean, you know, the good student trained up on this second family of ideas from you walking into the firefight with some fire-breathing dragon type who's really mad deploys, of course, the, oh, thank you. I had not noticed that. Uh, continue. I want to understand. Please explain. And it's a little too sort of talky, maybe. Yeah. And it's just sort of stimulating the energy of the other person who's quite just looking for something to hook onto and be more mad about. Mm-hmm. Is that am I silly to think that, or is that just my personal style, my own experience? Yeah, no wrong. kidding, no kidding. Oh, it's hard to talk about in the abstract. Sometimes people are worked up about things and give it, and you know, usually you think, well, give them a little bit of space, oh, no, or rather, to help you understand specific. why, and then it'll change. And then others, yeah, so it's actually just feeding the fire. Yeah. So I'm gonna somebody um, customers really mad. Mm-hmm. They uh, write me some angry message and then you know I, I by the time i'm open the message the phone's ringing and i'm talking to them and they're just breathing fire on me yeah uh, well you guys didn't do the thing that you said and your people are all idiots and okay my strategy in moments like that is often not to get into lots of nitty-gritty while they're so mad because mm-hmm. it just gives them a lot of rope you know get tied up in i often worry about asking too many questions at that moment instead i'll be like okay, I very much appreciate you bringing this to my attention. I will take action on this and I will be back to you in one day. I'm going to check with these colleagues you mentioned, get the information, and I'll be back to you to learn more about if we've done the right thing. So I'm kind of using the first one. I'm not quite asking a lot on number two, but you may have items further down the list for this diffusing, you know, taking responsibility, apologizing, whatever, but I'm not asking that much. You think it's a go-to? Yeah, and I would also say that you actually are listening. So in other words, there are a bunch of forms of listening. And I think that we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice if we imagine that it only comes in the form of questions. First of all, some questions aren't really questions. They're arguments disguised as questions. Like, and <laughs> Why do you, you always think do that? this to me? <laughs> <laughs> why, yeah. why would you be so stupid? Question mark. But what you're doing is basically saying, I hear that this is a problem. I am going to learn more about it. I will then come back to you. And so you're basically saying your point of view is important to me. And I'm going to spend some time figuring it out. Whether or not that's in conversation with you or not, that feels satisfying. Is that fair? Mm. Yeah, right. I'm also taking accountability. And, and yeah, and that's another big I mean, just piece. apologizing. What's with people who can't apologize? It's such a powerful thing in an emotional context, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And we tend to say that looking for an opportunity to take responsibility for what does feel like it's legitimately your contribution to the problem. So I'm not saying you know, take the blame for everything actually at all. I'm saying if there are things you wish you'd handled differently and that you think need to be fixed, like own that early because it totally changes the purpose of the conversation. Now the purpose isn't for you to argue why this is my fault. We're already saying, yeah, I think there's some things we need to change. Let me look into it. And by the way, sometimes there's, I can't fix this by myself. So I'll need you to do some things differently too. And But that opens up that conversation, and now we're actually solving the problem. Yeah, brokering the deal. I'm going to need your help to do the thing. Brokering the deal, but also you're implicitly saying, by the way, you contributed to this problem too. So it's not just a gentle invitation to the table. There's no problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, hey, you know, you could make your reservation a little earlier. That'll help. Whatever that Calibration of the scope of the apology. So calibration of the scope of the apology. The insincere, I'm sorry for everything. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. In some ways can be annoying, but it's certainly better than nothing. It's certainly better than the zero, like, oh, I see you have a problem here. Well, good luck. Perhaps I can help you with it. It seems to me that to adopt the posture of apologizing actually is an identity level kind of remedy. Not, I I don't know, somehow it seems to have a very powerful emotional one, but it's the sort of bended knee that says, I'm here, I'm at your service, you're very important, and I'm willing to submit to you my ego by apologizing for something that may or may not be fully my error or responsibility? Or am I wrong and it's silly and you risk totally losing credibility by over-apologizing in scope? I think the question is whether it feels sincere. And I think when people have a bad reaction to an apology, they that reaction is actually not coming from whatever the exact form of the apology was, but it 
means they feel like it's not really authentic. It's a way to get me off the phone or to be dismissive. Like, I'm sorry you felt that way. Yeah, now, perfect apology. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry you felt that way is feels really different than, you know, I'm really sorry. That must have been hard. And that feels like, yeah, I'm actually really appreciating what that was like. And that feels sincere and not dismissive. These seem really trainable here at the emotion level. And um, as one deploys these kind of as tools that you might have learned, I suppose it really matters the context into which they are deployed, right? It's another area that perhaps is missing from some of the classical interpersonal and decision making mm -hmm. theories that, um, you know, like I'm going to give you some feedback. I'm going to follow this little recipe for feedback and it's just going to work. And that, of course, is blind to the history of the relationship of the two people and their own self-identities. And I wonder if that takes us now to the territory of identity or if it actually just takes us to be better attunement to the emotions and where they've come from and how we navigate our shared history and, and, and how you mm -hmm. feel about that, the role of context, I guess. Because like, this like, list of tactics is so handy, but clumsily deployed, they will not accomplish their aims. Yeah, so I think one of the legit criticisms, by the way, of difficult conversations, the book as well as thanks for the feedback, is that for some people, it, the language feels very stilted, right? So it feels like I would never say that kind of thing, right? And that because it feels so out of sync with how they talk in the world and in their relationships, it feels like, well, that's just going to feel like I'm techniquing the other person and it, it'll lose authenticity. And I think maybe what we did not say successfully as clearly as we meant to was, look, we're using language as terms of art to try to be clear about the concepts, but you to illustrate what we're describing, but you need to translate that into the particular culture and context of the relationship you're in. Like for some people in some contexts saying, you know, I really apologize. I think I've probably contributed to this problem. will feel totally natural. And in other places, you would say exactly the same thing much more authentically by being like, dude, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I effed up, you know. It does take practice, though, podcast. right? To find to find. So your, you're uh, you're accomplishing the same thing, but like just put it in the words that feel totally natural and authentic to you, and adapt it to the context that you're in. Which takes um, practice, right? To go and have it practice, a space that you may not right? be familiar with, and yeah. Totally. It's like speaking languages. When you're fluent in a couple of languages, you know that you can translate into the language you need to, but also there aren't necessarily exact words, there are exact correlates, but you're getting the same idea across. I want to do a little on the third layer identity, and I want to not just inspect it and figure out how to sort of handle it when you know it's really about that, but I also want to sort of test it with a, a few other sort of voguish notions that people are, are working with about awesome. candor. So like, okay, Obviously, the problem we're having is that you think that I have underestimated you as a person and your capabilities, and I'm just not treating you with the respect of a senior leader in this organization, and I'm not giving you enough uh, room and authority and air cover and whatever else is you know, due to a person of your stature, but I really do need to tell you that you're not doing a great job. Like, There's a bunch of stuff that you're well short of where you need to be, and every time I try to explain this to you, you're often like super defensive. My God, you're challenging me as a person. Why don't you just fire me? I, this is not going to be productive, I don't think this way that we're engaging. So clearly there's something right there at the core about how you think I view you and what the way you view you. And okay, so I've set it up. Yeah, have yeah. I? Am I in the ballpark? Yeah. And yeah. then I'm like, you're a good person. I think you're very smart. This is why we hired you. I mean, am I getting anywhere with this or is this just the BS that's going in one ear out the other for my counterparty? I think I'd ask them. And I mean, say, uh -huh. <laughs> and nothing changes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, the yeah. aha uh -huh was meant to be one of these very uncommitted, like, mm, mm -hmm, mm, whatever. Mm. They're tight. They're tight. They're not open, right, in this conversation. Yeah. My, my recipient yeah. here is, hasn't read your book on feedback. But how do I crack it, right? I, I want to have the identity conversation. Yeah. But the words aren't doing it. Right. Yeah. Partly, I would be thinking about how to have the conversation about this pattern. So rather than huh. waiting till I have a new piece of feedback for you that you can reject out of hand again, and tell me that I the problem is that I don't trust you, I would be looking for an opportunity to say like, so I'm noticing a pattern between us, which is that, you know, the last three or four times I've come to you to talk a little bit about some, th some opportunities, it feels like you're missing some places where I'd love to see some changes in terms of just my expectations and where we're trying to get in sync with each other. I think maybe you walk away feeling attacked 
and defensive and sort of unfairly undervalued, it seems like. And I walk away feeling frustrated and misunderstood because I think I'm trying to help, but obviously doesn't feel to you like help. And so I guess I'm curious what's going on between you and me that makes that the result. Or maybe yeah. you don't think that's the result. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I so would be looking to have that the, conversation. Yeah, right, right. The conversation. Instead of getting stuck under the you pushed me in the backseat thing, leave that aside. Let's talk separately. Hey, listen, how do we deal with each other? Fixed mindset, growth mindset, you know, like, so you're talking to this person. Yeah. And obviously you're doing it because you think they can make some progress. But I often find in my dealings with folks, there are folks that just seem to not change. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a skill thing, will thing, context, I don't know. But yeah. So your recipe is not a, a panacea for all situations. If the other party's not there, then I don't know. Yeah, this is one of the challenges, which is the only person we have control over is us. So I can do the best job I can to invite them to self-reflect and to engage with me and to have a better conversation and whatever, but I can't control whether they take that invitation up or not. And you're alluding to the fixed and growth mindset, which I also think is really helpful in terms of the way we tell the identity story. Like, are you telling me I'm not smart enough? you don't trust me, et cetera, or is this just the next thing I need to learn or to work on? There's something here for me to change and get curious about, which is much easier in a growth mindset than a fixed mindset. Yeah, right. But so, you know, on the emotion layer, we were sort of managing them, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's like, you know, how do we deal with it? Do we wait a bit? Do we diffuse it? Do we recognize mm-hmm. it, respect it, whatever? Here on the identity layer, what are we doing? What are we trying to do? Well, so part Lee, and this is, I think, related to fixed growth, in difficult conversations, we talk about grounding your identity and, in, and helping other people ground their identity in reality, which is we're not either a good person or a bad person, competent or incompetent. We're all a work in progress, right? So we are going to make mistakes. We are going to contribute to the problem. We are sometimes going to have mixed intentions with each other. And if we accept that, then it's just easier to be more open and then you're less likely to have an identity quake. So when I have a sense that somebody else is, in my view, overreacting, partly it's, you know, hey, by the way, I don't think this is a disaster. I feel like you feel like I don't trust you at all. I actually think you're doing whatever, 80%, 90% of the job well, but this 10% is actually important. But that's natural that there'd be a growth edge or a learning curve. So that feels normal to me. It sounds like it doesn't feel so normal to you. It's basically inviting that conversation to help them see that it's not all or nothing. It's not black or white. In a way, it's like for every single person, it's the same then when these identity stakes are high. Relax, you'll be fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> I mean, is that roughly? Well, or, or it's, not you, it's not for sure that you'll be fine, but I guess where you're at, you know, the question for me is, can we learn together? Like, what do we think is changeable and what isn't? Let's have an honest conversation about that. And I think people, part of what creates an identity quake is holding the story about who you are as either or, black or white. So if you have any suggestion that I'm not doing a perfect job, it's a disaster. Right. Either you trust me or you don't. And if you, you don't trust me or you me, don't, I'm yeah. out. You, you're treating me with respect or you're treating me completely disrespectfully, right? Okay, that's just too, that's like a fairy tale. You know, it's a cartoon version of who we are. Everybody's fine and has in them a wide range of capabilities and can develop new ones. So let's say this is the reassuring yeah. thing to hear when you're on the other side of the conversation, but you're asking for some different behaviors and development of some new skills and, you know, you believe that this person can develop them. And that's it's rather calming because there is no fundamental indictment or judgment like, you know, the identity I have is not suitable. But I wonder if um, someone's self-perception is is a different version of this issue. So like, you know, mm-hmm. I see myself as a powerful leader and should not be questioned. And why would you question me? And of course, I know I'm fine and I can improve, but really I deserve a different kind of treatment here. Or some of these other kind of identity problems that we were speaking about that don't have that, where you can improve your way to it. You know, it's just rather that... Yeah, there's this funny way in which we all have a set of implicit rules about how, the, how other people are supposed to, supposed to treat us. And you know, to be a good friend, you should do this. To be a good colleague, you should do this. And they're so implicit that we're not even aware of them until you violate them. (laughs) And I realize that what you did was totally inappropriate or outrageous. And for some people, their implicit rules include, you should never question 
my judgment or what I'm doing. And they're particularly brittle in some way. So that any criticism or question or suggestion that something could be better or different feels really threatening. And that's a really hard way to live, frankly. Yeah. So are they, I don't know, I guess they just need some rehabilitation. Yeah, we're good. It's not a move. It's not like a move to get through it. You got to tiptoe around. I mean, there is, if you have the kind of relationship where you can have a conversation about that, you know, to say, here's what I'm noticing. Like, what's, talk to me about that. But it just depends on what your relationship is. Radical candor in this yeah. context of our brittle person or of a well-judged moment to have the conversation about a repeating pattern in a relationship. This sort of candor crowd is out there telling you to tell the truth and care a lot when you tell the truth. And in fact, telling the truth is a way of caring. And the more true you can be, that proves that you care more. I uh, don't always have that result when I tell people the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I wonder, I mean, because the, the way you, you've sketched your theory here, right, about about a person and their feelings and their identity, and there's all these delicate sort of glass palaces that you're sort of tiptoeing through inside their heart and mind. And these candor people, like, do they know about this? <laughs> well, so it's interesting that you're describing it as tiptoeing through these delicate things in their heart. And I guess I would think about it slightly differently, which would be and related to candor. I want to be careful about telling the truth because whatever picture I have of them is incomplete. So I can put forward what I can see. And if we're going to find a truth, then I have some pieces of that puzzle that I think would be valuable to you. And you've got other pieces of the puzzle that aren't visible to me. So part of the purpose of our conversation is to figure that out. So that's number one, which is I want to be careful that I think to think that my story is the truth or to characterize it that way because I think it's a part of the truth. But the second, I think that I sometimes wonder whether the candor movement overlooks is what is my purpose and how likely am I to achieve it in this way? So that is a little bit of the filter that I've got, which is, is there a purpose to saying this now? And how likely is it to achieve what I'm hoping to achieve? And that would be the question that I would ask before sharing my pieces of that puzzle. Pieces of the truth, yeah, yeah. My pieces of the truth, which, and it's not to discount those pieces, right? Because you're usually sharing them because you think you're trying to be helpful and honest. And I do think that ultimately you want to be as transparent with other people as you can. That's what helps them trust you because they can trust that you're being straight with them. So I'm a big advocate of as much transparency as you can have between your internal voice and your external voice. I think that's what generates trust. Let me just ask for a moment, now that we've completed our sort of sketch of, um, I think it's I think it's, it's your theory of mind, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> in your dealings with other people, and um, maybe zoom in on this like really brass tacks practical matter that you've spent some time on uh, and written a whole book about. And one of the core and most sensitive and emotional moments in, in sort of business and professional life, this like moment of giving feedback, it is such like a fraught kind of let's find a room, let's have a meeting, I want to have a catch up with you. And it's like, everyone's scared. And it's so strange, you know, the sort of the basics of it. And and so I guess, you know, the basics of the way that I've been trained on it when I was at McKinsey, for example, or some other places that seem to think they're good at it. It's like, um, well, here's what I saw. And maybe even before the here's what I saw, you got to like, sketch the situation or the context a bit. And then here's what I saw happen. You know, Mm -hmm. you did this and you did that. And well, and this is how I felt about it. That's perhaps one ancient version of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw some stuff, made me feel this way, just telling you. And you might go a little further than that and say, um, in this context, I saw some stuff, and I think it had these consequences. That's what I think. And I don't think they were great. I didn't feel good about it. So you might sketch mm-hmm. some more causality in there. Now, I wonder if you think that simple sort of formula is okay for the giver. And I know you've you've thought a lot about the yeah. re- recipient as well, but is that a good formula for the giver? And is it a conversation or is, because obviously like what's the truth? And so give me your take. Yeah, totally. What we would say is that you're basically saying, here's what I noticed. Here's the data I have, right? Here was my interpretation and here's the, the consequence or the impact I'm worried about. Or here's something I'm curious about. I was wondering why you didn't do the following or whether you also were worried about that. So I think it, it is a formula that is helpful because it's basically making it a two-way conversation. It's sharing your puzzle pieces and it's sharing the what's motivating you to share it, what the consequences or concern would be. And can I use your layer cake? Can I uh, either go from the, the, you know, what's your story to how are you feeling to who you are or reverse? 
I mean, can I do the feedback that way too? Like, can I just start with you're a hugely valuable contributor on the team and a valuable member of our company? You're the best. I like you and you're great to hang out with, la, la, la. You're a good person. And as we know, we can all find ways to improve. So I'd like to move up the layers to uh, some incident that I had some feelings about and then get to the story? Or am I, is that doing it the wrong way? No, you can do it. You can absolutely do it that way. I think even more ideally, if, if we're going to live in an ideal world, these are conversations that we're kind of having in pieces day in and day out. So that when you come to me and say, hey, I think you're a really valuable member of the team, I'm not thinking. Oh, Instantly, great. I'm about to be fired. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? Like if yeah. the only time I hear appreciation from someone else is when it's about to be followed by coaching, then the appreciation actually loses a little bit of positive impact, right? So hopefully I hear from you regularly, like, man, that was great. I thought, you know, the way you closed that meeting, whatever, yesterday, when everybody was so frustrated was awesome, period. That's the end of that conversation, right? Two hours later, we're in something and I'm like, hey, I noticed that you missed a chance to reinforce this did you notice it or was there a reason you didn't at that time, right? So I'm I'm actually raising something that I think you should have done, but because you already feel appreciated, it's not a big deal. So part of in improving feedback conversations, part of what lowers the stakes on them is that it's not a whole big, I, we need to sit down and have a little chat, et cetera. It's sort of, uh, this is how we work Always together day on. in and day out. Yeah. yeah. Feedback and, is part of the content. Yeah, it's just part are of there. the content. Are we're real. always we're always improving how we are collaborating together, and I'm as open to your suggestions. I'm asking you, like, hey, what's one thing that I could improve when we have this meeting next week? Because I wasn't sure about this part of it, you know, or whatever. So that I'm actually asking for feedback as much as I'm offering it to my colleagues. Yeah, I think for folks who build up a lot of anxiety around these things, they sort of defer them a lot and then turn them into these hugely these monumental kind of convocations and then the emotions in the room even before you've begun. Yeah, and I think because there are a couple of things that happen. One is if we're not having any conversation, I'm not getting any feedback for long stretches of time, then anything you say to me is giving me a little window into what you think of me. And that raises the stakes for everybody. And then the second is that if I'm waiting around for someone to offer me feedback or, you know, mentor me or something, I can be really frustrated when I'm not realizing I actually have some agency here. Like I can take charge of my own learning and I can go and start asking people, hey, you know, what's one thing that if I changed it, you think would make this better? And I'm doing it in ways that are not asking a lot of other people. Like they can give me something off the top of their head, but I can take charge of and drive my own learning and not wait around for the perfect mentor to show up. And then I don't feel quite so at risk in terms of knowing whether people think I'm, I'm doing a good job because I'm actually reaching out and looking for ways to improve and looking for, you know, what did you think of this? Was this what you were looking for? I'm kind of getting the, the signals that I need to feel secure. Sheila Heen, it has been amazing having you on the show. I think people have so much to learn from your work. And uh, I guess millions already have, but there are, I have noticed there are some folks who haven't yet taken these. Do you podcasts. have a few people in mind that you would like? <laughs> <laughs> I will be sending this podcast directly to yeah, you, there you, and go. you and you and you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's a little something special just for you. No, it was really a pleasure. And, and I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and reflection that you're putting into sort of who are we in these conversations and how complicated is it or how do we find our way to the other side? Because I think that's the journey together. Hey listeners, thanks for subscribing or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.